Welcome to The Grange Point, where we hang out and talk about the latest news in science technology and how they relate to your everyday life. This podcast is brought to you by the Young Scientists of Australia. We're a youth organisation aged 15 to 25 whose work is to promote science to the youth of Australia. Some of our greatest scientific achievements come from the studying of the very, very small. Whether it be the LHC and all the fantastic work being done there, or perhaps the discovery of the electron itself, or to finding ways to compress all our digital memories into smaller and smaller devices, shrinking things down to smaller and smaller and more manageable sizes is a very active field of scientific research. So Lauren, you remember how when iPods started, this is going to take you back a little bit here, I'm going to use iPods, I would have used like iRiver Zunes or Walkman's is my frame of reference, but Lauren is younger than me, so I will like pitch it down to her level. Excuse me, I definitely had a Walkman, it had like anti-shock in everything. (laughs) Um, Discman, not a Walkman. Um, oh, uh, oops. Sorry. Sorry. Yeah. Um, so as we've gone through time, storage and our ability to store things have gotten smaller and smaller. Our iPods, Walkman, Discman have gotten smaller and smaller and smaller as well until we can fit what used to be a one massive LP with 12 songs on it to thousands upon thousands of songs in my thumbnail. And that is the power of technology. But, you know, that's still pretty big. How small can we really go in compressing data? What's the limit? So one of the huge things we're facing nowadays is the fact that we can store so much so small because we've also got so much that's being created every day. Yeah, it's like terabytes of data is being created almost record levels every day. So the, the issue is that more information has been produced in the last like five years than in the all of history leading up to those five years. It's there crazy. Was like, there was about a tenfold increase from 2013. Like that's like six stacks of computer tablets stretching to the moon. Yeah, yeah. We have a lot of information and all of our cat videos and terrible podcasts and anime blogs They're taking and webcomics, they're taking up more space, guys, and we need somewhere to put them. <laughs> So just to make sure we can deal with the next season of whatever our favorite TV show is at the moment, basically we need to figure out better, more reliable ways to store our data and also just like actually make it so we're not taking up entire like complexes just trying to store data there. And also like not using rare earth metals and magnets and so on and really expensive and difficult stuff to get out of the ground, which is what we do currently with hard drives. Well... The scientists from the Molecular Information Systems Lab. That, that's an amazing name. So the Molecular Information. This is getting exciting. That's, that sounds pretty small. Yep. Well, they're kicking it old school and going back to the first kind of like data storing technology that we ever had. So like tape drives, cassettes, no. LPs, wax records, engraving things on clay cylinders that were being sculpted and then vibrations from an earthquake occurred and this hand sculptor's hands moved so it actually captured all the sound of the earthquake in a kind of really old school LP style from thousands of years ago. I feel like that's something you probably own. No, it's not, but it, it's really cool science. So, no, it's, <laughs> not, it's obviously not that. What? what? <laughs> well, it's actually something a little bit closer to home. I'm talking about your DNA. Uh, hang on a second. My dioxyribonucleic acid, the instructions that make up me, they're like builder kit for people and things and plants and cells. Exactly. So basically each of your cells has a whole bunch of like instructions inside of it, which just tells you, 
hey, look, cell, create this molecule that's going to help with the rest of your body, sending messages throughout the world, helping yourselves um, reproduce, stuff like that. Yeah, that, that makes sense. It's an instruction kit. It tells the cell how to function and do certain things, produce certain proteins, how to behave when thing appears, how to make other thing appear. That kind of makes sense. That is, I guess, a bit of information storage. But that's great for my cells. And, I, and I'm very glad they have that and keep that information. <laughs> but that doesn't help store my cat videos, Lauren. How? Uh-huh. So, as we know, DNA is mostly stored as, like, ones and zeros, correct? For, like, digital data. Digital data is stored in ones and zeros, yep. Yep. Okay, so the first step is for DNA, rather than ones and zeros, it's actually made up of sequences of four different bases. Oh, so Gattaca, G, T, C, and A. Yep. Adenine, guanine, cytosine, thymine. So basically, instead of having ones and zeros, what these researchers have found is instead they turned them into the bases that are found in your DNA. Oh, then that's amazing because all of our data systems are based on binary, on and off. The reasons why we use one and zero is literally because it's on and off. It's very easy to distinguish between the two. Um, and that's how all our electronics works, binary because there's two states. And this would be quaternary, four states, G, A, T, and C. So actually, um, what they talk about here as well is that it actually means that you don't get a lot of errors. Yeah, yeah, because there's a lot of distinguishing between G, T, C, and A. Because sometimes, and this may sound a bit silly, it can actually, as an electrical engineer, it can be difficult to distinguish between a zero and a one. Sometimes <laughs> it can something can debounce when you actually mean it to be zero, but it briefly goes up to one and then comes back down to zero. Um, and with G, T, C, and A, it's actually they're very distinct different types that you can really clearly identify. So that makes a lot of sense. That'd actually be better. So what they did first was they translated all that digital data into their four bases. Yep. And then they chopped that data into bits and pieces so they could start synthesizing it into tiny little DNA molecules. Ah, okay. So basically they, they need to make their building blocks, their puzzle pieces. Their, if you want to think about like a big a big taking all the words out of a newspaper and cutting them up into pieces and then the, they can assemble words with it later on. Exactly. So they were just some, basically just making everything smaller. Yeah. So that was the first step, taking all your data, making it smaller. The next step, though, is actually being able to retrieve that data once you've actually contained it. Yeah, yeah that's right, and read it again, yeah. So the next step they did was um, they actually used this technique that's used a lot in basically reading DNA sequences. Yep. They use polymerized um, chain reaction. Yep. Or which, PCR. Exactly. And that just helps you identify like the different zip codes you're looking for. Yeah, exactly. So when you're examining a, a DNA sequence, you're like, okay, it's roughly going to be in this part of the DNA sequence. So you're not looking at the top for something that's actually going to be buried deep in the middle. Mm -hmm. Basically, I know it starts off with A-A-A-T. I'm going to create like a little tag with this, chuck it in there, and then it'll actually amplify all the bits that I need. Yeah. Just so like using like the search function. Yeah, that, and it, that's a really cool piece of like uh, what we do with our, um, our current molecular biology to help, you know, understand and analyze DNA. So once they've actually like retrieved that DNA, then they use, they basically use the... Um, they use the PCR to sort of get at it and find out what information stored there. And then they use like sequencing techniques, basically being like, okay, so we've got the sequence of data now. So just got to translate from these letters and translate them back into numbers. 
Yeah, so they they basically know. Okay, well, what did we what did we say that GTC and A or this combination of GTC and A's actually mean? Ah, okay, mm-hmm. that translates to hello, or this translates to world, and then they can go from there. And basically, they found out they could do this with videos, images, document files. Well, as long as they have the right translation table set up, they could do anything really. Exactly, and I mean, if you screw that up, then things <laughs> go wrong. You try again; it's all good. So my question here is why? Why are we not now having all of our computers just be powered by DNA? Ah, so the largest barrier, before we start with the whole DNA storage, and we just store things in a whole bunch of sugar cubes everywhere. Sugar it's- cubes? I was going to, like, store it directly in my cells. <laughs> so you just get, like, a tattoo with a specifically, like, certain cells and then just being like, yeah, it's cool. I'm just going to, like, analyze this tattoo. Oh, there's that information again. Ah, uh, Yes. Yeah. I don't see any problems with that plan. That plan sounds amazing. <laughs> well, basically, what we would be doing instead if we're, like, storing it in, like, some warehouse or something is the reason why we can't be doing this yet is because of cost and the efficiency for actually synthesizing the DNA. Right, chopping the DNA up into all the little GTCNA pieces we need to then assemble into our strings to code information in takes a lot of time. Exactly. So... Once you've got the right amount of like money, because it's still a little bit, um, co- like it's still pretty expensive at the moment. And if you're willing to wait for the time, it's going to work, but it's just not efficient enough quite just yet. Well, hopefully, the people at University of Washington in Seattle, here's Seattle, and the researchers at, Mi- at Microsoft who are helping them with it can get onto this because. We need somewhere to put our podcast in the future, and I'm, I'm, I'm eyeing off DNA storage as being the long-term option here. Then instead of putting your information in the cloud, you could literally be the cloud, or your DNA could be chopped up and synthesized and put in and become the cloud. All hail the glow cloud. That, that's pretty much the only way to end that. those of you that have listened to this podcast, you would have remembered we covered fairly extensively Mammal March Madness. But there was one matchup that Mammal March Madness did not consider, and that is pitting, well, the mighty weasel, which was in Mammal March Madness and has been in various forms, did pretty well. But there's one foe that even the crafty weasel cannot beat, and that is a very high-powered, state-of-the-art, kilometre-long particle accelerator. In fact, that matchup happened on Saturday, on Saturday the 30th of April at the Large Hadron Collider in CERN, the LHC, which you may have heard of for its discovery of the Higgs boson, amongst other things. But its most recent activity was interrupted when a confused weasel somehow managed to weasel its way in to a 66,000-volt transformer and cause a short circuit. And researchers described it as a severe electrical perturbation. And was shut down. And that, that's quite quite impressive for this, this weasel to have uh, sort of brought to a halt a 27 kilometer long international research hub. 
And this is not just a sad incident of a poor weasel meeting its match in the face of physics, but it also was not at a good time for the restarting of the LHC to conduct more research. They had been ge- scientists at the LHC and CERN had been gearing up to resume experiments early next week after they've just come back from a technical stoppage of about several months as they were about to restart their hunt for about to restart their hunt for more extreme and unusual particles. Now, after this weasel incident, it sort of compounded things again, which means I'll have to do basically a full once over of the machine, which when your machine is 27 kilometers long, takes a bit of time. Now, for history's sake, the weasel was not the first animal to wreak havoc at the LHC. In 2009, a slightly peckish bird briefly knocked out the part of the particle collider when it dropped a baguette on an external electrical power supply and triggered a chain reaction that shut down part of the LHC's cooling system. That only took a few hours to recover from. Now, interestingly enough, all of this occurred on the 30th of April, and that is a very auspicious day when it comes to physics. Because on that day in 1897, J.J. Thompson discovered and formulated the electron. Now, up until then, we didn't really understand much about particle physics. In fact, we didn't even know what particle physics was. We didn't know there was things below the atom as well. And at the time, most people envisaged the smallest size of the atom, the smallest thing that they had. A hydrogen atom was basically it. That, that was it. And there was nothing really beyond that. But in 1897, Thompson was one of the first to suggest that there was a more fundamental unit made of something a thousand times smaller than an atom, suggesting subatomic particles known, in his case, as the electron. And through a series of experiments involving cathode ray tubes, he actually discovered and proved the existence of subatomic particles. He did this uh, by measuring the heat generated when when rays from a cathode ray tube hit a thermal junction, and then he compared this with the magnetic deflection of the rays. And what this suggested is that the rays, the cathode, these cathode rays, these light rays, were a thousand times lighter than a hydrogen atom, but they're also, but their mass was the same in whichever type of atom they came from. So he conf- concluded that they must have been composed of very light, negatively charged particles, which were universal building blocks of atoms. And it is pretty close to being fully right there. And this revolutionized uh, and began what we would call as particle physics and our understanding of the world. And of course, for his research, he was awarded a Nobel Prize in 1906. And another sign of uh, weird, wonderful ways that physics works sometimes, effectively, J.J. Thompson won a Nobel Prize for proving that electrons and matter, uh, electrons are particles, because he's had basically a particle-based explanation because it was instead of just a continuous beam it was individual discrete chunks that's basically what his experiment came down to however his son george paget thompson also won a Nobel prize his Nobel prize was in 1937 for actually proving through a series of experiments that electrons had wave properties and weren't particles so basically The father got the prize for proving that electron is a particle, and his son got one for proving that it isn't. Of course, now, with the full discovery and understanding of quantum mechanics and the nature of light and particles, we know that it's both. But it's a little bit of synchronicity at play there. So this weasel shows a very auspicious day to uh, bring the LHC to a halt. And it just goes to show that as much as you think you're on the right track, sometimes... 
it takes a slightly longer way to get to the end result. And that's what science is, just a constant march towards an ever closer approximation of the truth. This has been the Young Scientists of Australia's podcast, LaGrange Point. This week we found out about shrinking data centres and all our digital memories down to DNA level. Plus, the LHC being stopped by a weaselly weasel and the unusual history of the discovery of the electron. Our ending theme was composed by Audio Head to ysa.org.au for more information about the Young Scientists of Australia.